Thank you, Lydia and Anna, for that beautiful reflection. Let's pray. Lord, we're in your house. What a wonderful place to be. I'm praying, Lord, that while we're here worshiping you, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. That we would sense the wonderful promise that you've made to us and ratified on Calvary and that you are yet to completely fulfill by coming to take us home. So I'm, I'm praying, Lord, may our hearts be focused on going home. And while we're here, Lord, may we do our part and may we have your peace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Many years ago, I was on a phone call with a young woman before I was married. And I was looking her up in the cast. I was a student undergraduate at Andrews University. And I talked to her for a long time, and finally I summoned the courage to ask her if she would go out on a date. I didn't know her well enough to know if I'd be courting her. But this was the purpose, spending a little time together. So we went to an event at Johnson Gym, and then we went out to pizza. And in the process of the whole thing, before the evening was over, she was sitting on one side of the car, and I was sitting on the other. It was a double date. And I was treating her like a big sister. And I didn't even sit in the same booth. With the, there were three people on, in one booth and I was in another. This is how I started the dating relationship with my wife. And when she went back to the dorm that night, she said, if he grows up, he'll be a nice guy. <laughs> I won't tell you the whole story. I've told it before. I talk about it in our marriage retreats. But when the date was over, I didn't go back to my dorm saying, when she grows up, she'll be a nice woman. I went back to my dorm saying, there's a finish line and I'm headed towards it. It was long and hard. It was painful. And I'd walk the track at Johnson, outside of Meyer Hall and Berman Hall and I'd pray, Lord, turn her heart towards me, turn her heart towards me. I won't go into all the details and the pain of that, but it was worth it. And I want to tell you, I'm married and happy for it. We're going to take the kids to the Boundary Waters, some church members, some 7th and 8th graders and their parents. I was in the Boundary Waters before I was married. I was in love with Colleen. And the shortest distance between Ely, Minnesota and Bering Springs, Michigan is to drop down to Superior, to Eau Claire, cut across to Madison, to Chicago, around the lake, into Bering Springs. But my wife was in Des Moines, Iowa, where her parents live. Now, I don't like riding in cars on and on and on and on and on. But so much did I want to go to Des Moines, Iowa and see my girlfriend, because cell phones didn't exist. At least they weren't out in the public yet. And Zoom was decades away. 
that I said to the three college buddies I was, I said, hey, let's go down Interstate 35 from Duluth through Minneapolis to Des Moines, and then we can cut over that way. And they said, ain't happening. <laughs> My wife had had cancer when she was uh, between her senior year in academy and her first year in college. She stayed out for a year. I went to a public college for a year, and we both arrived at Andrews University the same fall. You know, she tells me that I was a brave person to marry her knowing she was just coming off cancer. I'm here to tell you that if one would give all of the valuables of one household for love, it would be utterly scorned. That's from Song of Solomon. I want to start this sermon the way I want to end it. The devil's got us in his crosshairs. And he's playing a twofold game. Love of the world and fear of the future. Now I want to tell you something. A proper healthy love in its right context allows you to face the future. So at the beginning of this message, I just want you to understand something. When, when John would write to the church of Ephesus, the first of the seven churches, and he would say, this is what I have against you. You've lost your first love. Without the engine, it doesn't matter how sleek the 28 fundamental beliefs look. And without gas in the tank. And the gas in the tank and the engine and the transmission hooked to the wheels is a function of acknowledging the voice of the Holy Spirit saying there's an idol. It's a seductive person trying to crowd in on the relationship between me and you. And that's how the devil works. So, what I want to say at the beginning of the message, if the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, break down every idol and I'll cast it out of your soul, you got to pull it over like Gideon did, okay? You pull it over and I'll handle it from there. I'm going to give you the strength to do it. If he says something in this message, if the Spirit speaks, it's a sermon. It's not a pastoral counsel. You're not sitting across from me at a table. I'm talking to all of you. The Holy Spirit has been prayed for to talk to all of us. And if while that's going on, a divine encounter transitions between you and God, praise the Lord and obey, because I'll tell you what. A restrictive conservative religion in a liberty-loving, licentious age is pretty chafing. But being in love with your creator and not being stuck in all the dysfunction that everybody else is in is 10 times better. So if he calls you away from that, good. Now let's go to the other. I told you it's got two sides. I don't want you to be in love with the world. You can't love Jesus and love the world at the same time. But some of you do love Jesus, but you're still afraid of the future. 
I should say some of us, because it comes and goes. Fear's like that, you know? Fear doesn't just say, I'll show up once and see if I've got, if, you know, if he'll let me in. No, fear's woven through the fabric of a fallen carnal nature. So the devil is trying very hard to make sure that through one or both, he robs God's church of readiness to reach the world. Take your Bibles and open them, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the finish line, the finish line. Paul uses this imagery. I'm going to use it too. And you're going to hear it lots in your life because it's his symbol or his metaphor for how to describe how to live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he in effect says, keep your eye on the prize. Focus on the finish. The race can get rough. Don't stop running. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. For though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, he's not talking about moral law. He's talking about a way of relating to the Jewish economy of various laws and using the moral law as a stepping stone to get salvation. He's not talking about casting off the Ten Commandments as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. The law was not his taskmaster. The law was the guardrails on his life. Jesus was his master. Verse 21, to those who are without the law is without the law. So in other words, the pagans and the Greeks, though not being without the law of God, see clarity but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. And for those that are coming from an evangelical background, Christ is the author of the law. He was the one that took them, according to this very same book, he's the one that took them through the wilderness. He was that rock. They all ate that spiritual food and drank from that spiritual rock. That rock was Christ. Same book, same author. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things... To all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. Don't miss the spiritual law here. It is then the gospel flowing through you to somebody else that the gospel transforms you. You don't have a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of sound mind. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. So Paul says, my life is bent around this one great purpose. And in this purpose, I'm going to be transformed myself. Now I'm going to read to you from a letter that Ellen White wrote to S.N. Haskell and his wife who were doing evangelism in New York City in 1901. She said, we may teach the Bible ever so zealously, but if we do not honor the truth by lives proportionate to its greatness... Efforts proportionate to its greatness. I want to put on notice every preacher that listens to this sermon whose main job is standing here in the pulpit. You need to know this is a public part of my life, but it doesn't capture the main part of my preparation and my week's efforts. Planning, working, visiting, counseling, all the things that help this church become a family, a, a, a mighty army, a focused group of people to do things. 
You can actually teach the Bible ever so zealously. You could stand in the pulpit. I'm adding now, but this is a direct quote. We may teach the Bible ever so zealously, but if we do not honor the truth by efforts proportionate to its greatness. In other words, Paul's not writing to the preachers in Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthian members. He's writing to this preacher and all of you, priests of God. He's writing to all of us. Ellen White is writing to a preacher here, and she's warning them, but it's a warning to all of us. If we do not honor the truth with efforts proportionate to its greatness. So you can have 28 fundamental beliefs, and you can even preach them if you're a preacher, a teacher, or a parent. But if there is not a life that's focused like Paul, to the Jews a Jew, to those without the law, without the law, if it's not proportionate to its greatness, we shall fall from the idea of Christ, which we do not honor, the self-denying, self-sacrificing Redeemer. I'm going to read it again. We can teach the Bible ever so zealously, but if we do not honor the truth by efforts proportionate to its greatness, we shall form ideas of Christ which do not honor the self-denying, self-sacrificing Savior. It is possible to preach the Word and walk directly contrary to its teachings, showing in the home life and in the business life a form of godliness without the power thereof. I think Seventh-day Adventism for a long time has been making this mistake. We may teach in the Sabbath school. We may have family worship. We may have our own personal devotional life, but our efforts are really for ourselves. We have no time for too much extra. Certainly, the church shouldn't get in the way of a well-crafted plan for our lives. The problem is, we're going to form wrong ideas about Jesus, and in effect, we're going to fall away. There's something about this focus on the finish line and efforts proportionate to the greatness of our truths. What Protestant denomination has ever been given at one time five distinct beliefs? Number one, this one is hard to imagine how it got away from the church, but number one is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's right there at the center of the commandments. Number two, I am coming and every eye shall see me as the light shines from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. No secret. Number three, when you die, you die. You don't float off into space and you don't come back and talk to people who are still living because you're not. You're dead. Number four, hellfire will be to cleanse the universe, not to torture the rebels. And number five, I told the story in this amazing uh, sandbox illustration in the Sinai Desert. It's called the Sanctuary, and it, it foretold the death of Jesus on the cross in the outer courtyard, and it foretold the ministry of Jesus to make application of that death in the holy place, and it foretold the end when Jesus would judge 
and bring an end to sin and unfortunately, some sinners. No other Protestant church in the history of Christendom has been delivered five life-changing, transforming, absolutely cornerstone relational doctrines about who God is. He wants to spend time with you. He's going to keep his promises and come back, and you don't have to worry, but you do need to pay attention because he's a God who holds people accountable. He's expressed his great love and affirmation on the cross, and he won't reject anyone who clings to the merits of his sacrifice and receives the power for freedom. And the great lie in the beginning is still a lie. God tells the truth. It's a little hard sometimes to hear because it's hard to see our natural unfitness, and God would never, as a compassionate God, Make 80 years of life, three score and 10, the stepping stone for an eternity of misery. And finally, a God who wants to make it all so clear that even a child could see the lamb on the altar is just an illustration of the lamb on the cross. And the priest who lays down his life in prayer and mediation is a faint, picture of the glory of a God who ever lives to make intercession. Do you know, friends, Jesus' only real purpose in living is to represent us before all the unfallen angels and take our, our messages straight to the Father himself? Can you fathom such a thing? So imagine with a storyline like this that the devil would put that church, especially in the crosshairs of his most fiendish and demonic and hellish efforts, so no wonder he wants me to be too busy or you to be too busy. No wonder he wants the mission of the church with this great mother load of amazing, delivering, salvific truths. No wonder he wants to make sure this church doesn't get enough wind under its wings to take off and fly and lighten the world with the glory of this message because that would put his kingdom on its heels and the gates of hell wouldn't be able to prevail. He'd be a loser instead of a winner, but we're living in an age where darkness is piling up all around us. We cannot take our eyes off the finish line, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. He started the story, the finisher. He's writing the story, and someday an exclamation point's gonna be put on a story of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's history. But now he sat down at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession. He is in the presence of the Father, somehow arranging more rooms in the Father's house and more seats on the Father's throne so that we can be there. It is the Father's good pleasure, he told us, to give us the kingdom. No wonder the devil's working so hard to make sure the only kingdom we want to focus on is this little terrestrial ball which, by the way, is even going to get its own redemptive moment. It's going to be remade. Praise the Lord. Yes, friends, efforts proportionate. Efforts proportionate. I talk about it every once in a while, but since Paul does too, I'm going to, you know, when you, when you run a marathon, you start nine months ahead of time, and you might not even be able to walk around the block. But a few weeks down the road, you'll be able to jog a little bit, and then on every Sunday... If you're a Sabbath keeper, every Sunday you push it. So you might have only been running a mile. I ran a mile on Tuesday. I ran a mile on Wednesday. I took 
A mile on Thursday, I took Friday and Sabbath off, and on Sunday, I'm going to run three. Never done that before. Before you run the race, you ran 18 on Sunday. And just before they run the race, you stop running. That week before the race, you don't even run. Your body is primed. All your sinews and muscle fibers are rebuilding to their maximum potential. I ran one mini marathon, and when I sat in the car on the way home, my body said to me, I thought you were my friend. I have never felt this bad in my entire life. Later on, I ran it again a little better, and finally, when I ran in the only marathon I've been in at mile 13, I thought, man, I'm feeling good. This is nothing. It was good for me. It changed how I ate. But I want to tell you, I invested my time. You can't run 18 miles in just a few minutes. And all of those months of preparation and laying off that food, do you think you want to carry one extra pound for 18 miles, let alone 26? It regulated my habits. And for those of you that have done triathlons or anything else, you know your life is focused on one thing, and that is the finish line. So the devil doesn't want you and me focused that way. But I want to challenge you this morning, friend. You have three things to focus. You need to take an honest assessment this morning and say, how focused am I? One is your time. Too busy for Jesus? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't feel like going out running five miles a day. I'll skip it. The next day, I don't feel any more like running it than I did the day before. You know, if, this, if, the, if the drywall was off of this sanctuary and you could see the cement blocks that comprise the walls, let's imagine that every day is one block in your life and you're getting to build a temple in your own life, but it's going to be represented by this one. Let's imagine that half of the blocks are missing. Do you feel quite as comfortable? Now, some of you are architects, so it's not a good illustration because really the roof is being held up by these trusses. But imagine that it wasn't. Imagine that somehow the roof was really being held up by the walls, like at your house. Half of the blocks are gone. The bugs can come in. The wind can blow through. The HVAC can't work right because so many days you said, well, too busy for this one. The great privilege of the God of the universe has put everything on pause. You know why they keep looking out into the universe and they can't see anything that's developed? Because number one, the infinite God's universe is way beyond any telescope that we've got floating around out there and all the creation's on pause. He's going to let us watch as he finishes. And he's waiting for an encounter with you, but you've got to get an A instead of a B plus. For some of you, that's not a problem. It's a B instead of a C plus. Or you've got to get the next account because that much money in your bank account, that much isn't enough. You need this much. The problem is, is that riches are like wings and they fly away. Or the other problem, which is the one I try to remind people of, is that if you're really focused on the finish line and you've got three things to manage, time being the most important one, the more you're on this, the less you have for all the things that really matter. Now, some of the things on here really matter. I get it. I know. And there's a bunch on here that falls into the gray zone. And especially if you're on it late at night, you've got to lay there in bed and can't fall asleep, then you don't feel like getting up the next day. And I tell everybody, if you want to have a walk with God... The key appointment is the bedtime appointment. You go to that right, the morning will be completely different. And by the way, the Bible says, Lord, in the morning you'll hear my voice. 
Now, if you're working the third shift, the morning for you may be at another time, but the beginning of the day is when you say, God, my life is yours. Fill me. Make me ready for whatever divine encounters or normal faithfulness you have in mind. I was talking with somebody this week who's busy, and they have a walk with God, but on the really busy days, they slip out without it. I said, hey, look, get one of these books. This is a devotional book. It's got about three minutes worth of reading in it. I didn't say this, but if you're here and listening today, get yourself some highlighters and a pen. Don't rush through it. Highlight the things that spoke to you, and then take five minutes for the book and five minutes to talk to God, even if you got a 12-hour day. Start the habit that puts another block in the wall, because I want to tell you something. When the winds come and the rains come, you want all the blocks in the wall. You want to be built on the rock, and you don't want to be afraid. But I wouldn't begin to let you off with leaving it at your own personal devotional life, because your own personal devotional life could subtly twist to be just about your own personal salvation, which it should not. You should be praying for other people and letting them know it. Do you have time to serve God? Now, of course, serve Him at work. That's your missionary zone. It's the nine-to-five missionary appointment. You should be a missionary there, but I don't know how good of a missionary you can be if you weren't filled with the Spirit in the morning because you stayed up too late last night checking something on Netflix or YouTube or something even... Maybe something even better. When you walk through those doors, whether you're a secretary, a janitor, or the CEO, people need to sense there's a completely different spirit about you. There's souls to be won at your workplace, and they're just waiting for something to arrest their attention that's different enough to do it. And a beautiful Christian, tell you what, there's a janitor in this community. Every time I'm with that janitor, my heart just beams. It's a beautiful encounter. Time. Do you have time for the church, the extended family, or are you too busy? So the people who don't have the advantages you have, and by the way, if you were raised in this Adventist church, if, if you're a first, second generation, first generation's more like me, but if you're a second generation and you were raised by a relatively normal family, what a blessed thing you have, but you're indebted. Spirit of Prophecy tells us every advantage you have is an indebtedness. You owe the rest of the world some little bit of you that's a part of the blessings he gave you. You don't have time. Remember what the Bible says, not Pastor Kelly, don't forsake the assembling together and all the more so. That's a troubling little phrase. Is there a grammarian here? Is there, is there an English major here? Does all the more so mean doing more as you see the day approaching? Or does it mean doing less? Or does it mean that's for the old people to do more and all the middle-aged people that are busy raising kids, they shouldn't gather all the more so? Think about it. Somebody might say something in that sermon or that message or in that after prayer meeting visit or after evangelism, somebody might say something that will alter the course of your life and save you from those 20 miles of ditch on each side of the 10 miles of the narrow way. It just might happen. And aren't your best gifts to be given back to Jesus? And isn't the apple of his eye not just you, but you collectively in the form of the church? Isn't that the one object of his supreme regard, and feeble and defective as it may be? Yes. 
We're not going to heaven on our own. Paul made that clear. I'm going to be all things to all people. It's a completely outward-focused life that has an inward component with Christ, but he recognized, and we should too. But let's not spend too much time here. I've got plenty of other things to say. Your money. Your money. The Bible says where your treasure is, there will be your what? Is everybody good on this? I think this side got it, and this side's not sure. young guy. Fortunately, in-laws, very generous and systematically benevolent. Your tithe is not a gift. Let's just get that out the door. It's not a gift to God. It's not an offering. There's a difference between a tithe and an offering. A tithe says, I want food on my table. I don't want to be in in an age that's malnourished spiritually. I want to have bread on my table. I want to be able to pay to take care of the proclamation. However, all of these churches out here, all of these churches, including this one, run completely, aside from the pastor's salaries, they're running completely on the offerings. Slight little variations at times. This church will only be as strong as my financial commitment to it, as my time prioritization makes it, And the last T is as my talents are shared. They are given by God, whether they were developed in school with your cooperation or not. They're a gift from God, and God makes first claim on them. Your bank account is hopefully blessed, but it's not so that you can store it all up somehow thinking that's your golden parachute. Now, let's jump into some sobering facts. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. Time, money, and ability. These things are to be offered up to God. Revelation chapter 18, looking at verse 1. Now, have you ever read the three angels' messages? The hour of judgment has come. Number one, worship. It's with a megaphone, a loud voice. Number two, Babylon has fallen. Have you ever noticed that it doesn't say with a loud voice? And then you go to number three, which is the mark of the beast, and it's with a loud voice. There's a reason. The reason is, is that Babylon will find itself in a slow-moving catastrophe which has not culminated in 1844 when the first angel of the 2300-day prophecy that the hour of judgment is coming. God is getting ready to look at the books and explain to all the angels and unfallen beings what he's getting ready to do. In 1844, for the sake of of an informed universe and a grieving universe, he's going to explain to them why some people they work to save won't be. And I want you to think about that. We are so quick to ascribe an absolute compression of the emotional response of the unfallen beings. God could decide in a second. He doesn't need to start in 1844. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just slow down. All of these angels who have given their lives away to reaching the lost, and you think they're going to show up on that great resurrection morning when the trumpet sounds, and they are the chariots that carry Jesus down here, and they haven't had a chance to process what it means that some of the people they tried to save are lost? Let's just do a little reflection for a moment. 
Let's take a little time on a Sabbath afternoon to go beyond the surface level of 28 fundamental beliefs, like the 2300-day judgment. But finally, that process gets us up to the living, and the fall of Babylon is moving forward. The wheat and the weeds are ripening, and, and the ripening of God's garner, the, the ripening of the harvest for heaven, is part of our missionary effort for him in the home, in the school, at work, and around the world. But Babylon doesn't get the megaphone in Revelation 14 that it gets in Revelation 18. But Revelation 18 is the last of the last in the opportunity for grace. After these things, Revelation 17 is the woman riding the beast that's the great whore. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the poison of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now let's just take a minute and examine what we've got here. As we come to the end of the proclamation of God's invitation, His last hour message of grace, the judgment hour is going on. At some point in time, it's going to transition to the living. Jesus is going to arrest the attention of the world. And the good news is, even though the darkness is darkening around us, there's a moment coming when heaven's going to flash the light and the message of truth, and everybody's going to be talking about those people. What I want you to know is that God's truth triumphs in the end, and it triumphs in us, with us and through us. But if we are not committed to the giving of that message and our hearts are not bound up like Paul's paying attention to the lost in hopes that they could come to the finding of Christ, if that's not the case, we could find ourselves drinking the same wine of immorality. And that immorality is described as a relationship with an evil woman. It's bringing two things together. It's bringing the world into the church to seduce the world away from the real Christ and hold the false one unprepared to meet the real one who's coming soon. You think worldliness can't infect the Adventist church? You don't think we can't drink of the false doctrines? The greatest false doctrine going around the church today is that you can have your cake and eat it too. It's all about God's grace. Well, I want to tell you something. It is all about God's grace. But he didn't just come, he didn't just come and say, look, you hang out here in Goshen. We'll get you the blessings you need it'll be all right. He said, no, I'm taking you out of this place. I'm liberating you from this bondage. You're going to be free. I'm making you a promise, and I'm going to be good on it. We're going all the way to a new land. We're going to get a new heart on the way. We're going to make a new covenant. We're going to be my new people, or I'm renewing what I promised I should say to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, friends, God's people are sleeping. All the ten virgins are sleeping. But what I want to assure you today is that there is a moment coming in which 
There's going to be one final showdown between light and darkness. And what I want you to know is the light wins. And it wins powerfully. Great authority, the illumination that overcomes the darkness, it's his salvation and, and gift of grace to us. It's his character. This has always been what his glory is. Satanic darkness cannot stop divine light. And the call is, is that the places where God's people are, some of them in fallen churches, they are being called out of it. And Babylon being this, this threefold group of religious commitments, one is to paganism, the occult, witchcraft, all these things. That's one member of the triad of Babylonian powers. The second is the medieval church that brought the dark ages on and persecuted God's true people, borne up by word of God in their conscientious convictions. And the third is apostate Protestantism. Well, you need to know something. The fact of the matter is, for the last few years, we've been wondering, will the Reformation fail? Is the Reformation dead? Even non-Adventists asking this question. Well, I want to tell you there's a reason they're asking it, because the medieval church has been fallen for a long time, and it wasn't hard to see it. And paganism in the occult and witchcraft has fallen from its very inception on the inside out. The only one of the partners that hasn't yet fallen completely yet is apostate Protestantism. And it's on its way down rapidly. So the truth of the matter is, is that there is this final call from God's people to give the three angels message because the Protestant churches of America are about to unite hands across the Gulf. They're about to be perfectly fine with false manifestation of spiritual power. In other words, the hybridizing or the co-opting, the bringing in of an untrue experience. The sins of this threefold union that will oppress God's people are great. And God says, I'm going to light the world up. Everybody's going to know the three angels' message in this generation will have its fulfillment, maybe in this generation. Come out of her so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, you need to know something. This cannot be the literal fall of Babylon because that's the seventh plague. So they're coming out of the spiritual fall of Babylon, waiting. The plagues haven't started yet. That's coming later in the chapter. And what's going to happen is, is that we're going to have seven plagues. The last plague will be the literal fall of Babylon. God is going to return in retribution upon this barbaric, supposedly spiritually high-minded group of organizations the executive portion of his judgment that's due. But I want you to see there, the call to come out is so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. One cannot just stay where they're at for comfort's sake. One has to move. And the truth of the matter is, it's going to be uncomfortable. All of my father's side of the family is Catholic wonderful people. I'm not sure how much they understand of these truths, but you know, the older you get, the hardest thing to leave behind is your loved ones, especially if they make your religion the point of division. I've talked to people in the not too distant future, too distant past, 
whose family members completely disown them for following Christ. So we just had kind of a little wake-up call, I think, in our society because the final movements will be rapid ones, we know. And I can still remember driving down the road, taking my wife to see her parents, and there was hardly a car on the interstate. I mean, it's one thing to have six lanes of concrete. You could drive on either side and not hardly ever see anybody. We've already kind of been through that. What am I, how am I connecting the dots in this sermon? What I'm saying is that some of us during that period of time were a little slow to recognize that coercion and conscientious conviction don't go together very well. The world's waking up right now. But some of us just kind of kept our heads down so that, you know, it wasn't quite so costly to us. I could lose my job, you know. Yeah, I know. I want you to know something. Seventh-day Adventists don't get a free pass on coming out of the sin dynamics of a postmodern world. Seventh-day Adventists don't get a free pass on the sins described in this narrative here. By the time you look at Babylon, you see that she's pride, arrogant, she's materialistic, focused on luxury, she's got a spiritual adultery going on, she's not very honest with herself, and she will persecute people who don't go along with her. Several things on that list could easily happen to someone inside the Adventist church. When you think about it, she calls herself a queen in verse 7. I sit as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and I will never see mourning. But the rest of the Bible calls her a prostitute. Now, I'm going to say a few things I really want you to think about. She wants to be a queen. So she wants to be married to civil power so she can enjoy all the things she's tried to evict through fear and ignorance. And by the way, you can sell, supposedly, people think they can sell the church on fear and dishonesty and leveraging the, the, the natural insecurities of the human heart, but the gospel can never be sold on fear. Never, never, never. But she's not a queen. She's an illicit lover because the church was never supposed to be married to the civil powers where it could make you do something that's between you and God. Now, let me ask you this. A prostitute and a pure woman, they have a few things that are crossovers. It's not like their worlds are totally separated. It used to be, and I won't even use the name of the street in Chicago, that that was the place where you knew where all the hookers were. Ugly subject matter, isn't it? It just happens to be an exceptionally repeating biblical theme. And the problem with a prostitute is that she makes no commitment, and the person that engages her services, the only commitment they make is money. But they do have to win customers. When you're a pure person, we'll stick with the female gender. And you're a virgin, you are hoping someday most 
that there'll be a partner by your side. We call one relationship dating and courting, and we call the other one seduction. What I want you to understand when you look at the hourglass of time, when you look at the hands on the clock of time, is that I want you to understand that a hand reaching out across the gulf may not be the only metaphor whereby which we would describe the growing degree of enamorment. When you have the Pope showing up at Congress, maybe it's kind of a courting because she wants to be a queen. When you have him abandoning core Catholic doctrines in order to win the favor of the world, maybe there's a form of seduction. What I'm suggesting to you is that we are getting very close to the loud cry of the second angel's message, and we ought to be paying attention because pretty soon, God's going to send his light down, and he wants it to have been flowing in small shafts through us, and he wants us gathering, focusing our time, our talent, and our treasure, getting ready so that when the, the switch is flipped, to use a poor metaphor, and the Holy Spirit's poured out, the world doesn't know what to do. They can turn off the internet. They can shut down the social media. They can close out our bank accounts. They can stop us from buying and selling. But no matter what they do, they cannot stop the glory in our bosom and in our faces and in our words from shining and meeting the needs in the midst of a global crisis that nobody can explain or fix. I'm here to tell you we're not far away, and we need in our private lives. I said early in this message that the devil had two methods. I don't want anybody to leave here afraid, and I don't want anybody to leave here unfocused. And some of our lives are not laser beam focused on the finish line. We think that somehow we're going to, I don't know what we think. I don't know if we're just going to keep climbing to the highest point on the Titanic or what? Global warming? You're not, if, if you think it's not happening, I just want to tell you pretty soon you'll be in the smallest minority of people. Just ask the people in Jackson who can't even get water out of their faucet. Just ask the people in eastern Kentucky where almost two dozen died and whole houses and everything. Just ask the people in the blistering hot sunny southwest whether under this dome. Just ask the people that are trying to make a living catching lobsters. Just ask the people... Whether you think it's true or not, pretty soon everybody's going to believe it's happening. And very soon, between the courting from some of the componentry about it, maybe you're mesmerized with the power that's on the dark side. Some are. Or maybe you think the religious right's going to be able to recapture this whole thing with governmental reenaction of proper laws. Hearts are not changed by laws. Laws protect civility. And they protect relationships, but they are not the relationship. The relationship that would save this nation is this great light I'm talking about. What I would like for you to all ask yourself is, when will we break out of normal and start gravitating towards the finish line a little more? You'll hear a voice behind you saying, you know what, you've saved enough. 
you'll hear a voice behind you saying, you know what? You've learned enough for right now. I want you to focus on learning something. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, maybe you should volunteer a year of your life. Maybe you should trust me and see if you can't put a little more in the bank account of faith. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, you need to be making an appointment with me. And you'll hear a voice behind you saying, you have an appointment with your church. Now, I spent a fair amount of time in the first sermon talking about the difference between a cheerleader and a coach. There's a place for both. But the cheerleader is not the one that gets you to the victory line. And the coach may actually pull you over and put his arm around you and say, what were you thinking? <laughs> That's not how we did it in practice, was it? Go back out there and do it different. And the coach may also be the one who's yelling and saying, don't you remember what I taught you? But I'll tell you what, when he puts his arm around you and he says, that was fantastic. Now, there is a place for cheerleading. Sometimes my wife says to me, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. She's both. And we should all be both. But when all you get is one, and it's cheerleading, you're not ready to run the race. My wife had her picture taken with her third and fourth graders with four Indiana governors, one which would go on to become the vice president of the United States. I mean, like, up close and personal. She would take her kids down to the state house every year, and she'd also invite dignitaries to the church school there in Cicero. And when they'd come, she'd get the kids out, and they'd make a, a retinue. They'd, they'd form a bodyguard, and they'd hold flags up, and the dignitary would walk into the church school under those flags. I want to tell you something. Ellen White says, no nation on the face of the planet has had as much divine favor shine on it as this one. It was raised up for our for the truth of this church. It was raised up as a safe haven. I want you to know something. While this nation has flaws, you check it out. You go and see what she says. There's flaws in my family. There's flaws in me. There's flaws in this nation, but this nation was raised up for a great moment, and when it no longer facilitates its purpose, it's no longer needed. But these, these men, and I don't know if there were any women that came or not, I don't think so, but these men would walk under this retinue of third and fourth graders holding up these flags, waving them. <laughs> it was pretty cool to watch, and you know what? They felt pretty cool walking through it. But I didn't know how cool it was until one day she said, we're going to do it for pastor appreciation. Well, I happen to be one of the pastors. And I want to tell you, when you walk through a living arch of people, who are doing nothing but honoring you for your commitments, it's pretty touching. Did you see what the bulletin says? Look at it. Get it out. I've never read this before. You probably haven't either. There's a good chance if I haven't read it, you haven't read it. 1895. I typed into the Ellen White database, cheap enough. You know, Ellen White says heaven will be cheap enough. Now, I want you to imagine seven days of going to Zion. Jesus came down and got us. We're with our family. Our hearts are set on pilgrimage. We're headed to the new Jerusalem. It's going to take seven days to get there. I don't know if the first day is the Sabbath or the last day is the Sabbath. I kind of think it's going to be one or the other. Maybe the first set of the seven days will be a Sabbath of rest somewhere in the universe where God is just ministering to our needs after the terrible night 
of sin and darkness that we came through makes sense to me, but we'll trust Jesus. But on that eighth day, as we come up towards the city, we see a retinue of angels on either side of the gates. And as we pass in, Jesus speaks. Now, I want you to see those angels lined up for I don't know how many deep and I don't know how many miles long. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you for the, from the foundation of the world. It's been waiting a long time. Here he tells you to be a partaker of his joy. It's it's a season of joy. We sang in his time for our praise time, and it's time to celebrate. And what is that? It is the joy of seeing, of the travail of your soul, fathers. It is the joy of seeing that of your efforts, mothers. They're rewarded. Here are your children. The crown of life is upon their heads. Can you read that without a little tearing up? And the angels of God immortalize the names of mothers. How do they do that? I don't know. Do they take you over to a wall where your name's written down as a victorious, successful mother whose efforts have won their children to Jesus Christ? Moms, you need to keep your eye on the finish line. Dads, you need to keep your eyes on the finish line. Your kids may misunderstand you for a period of time, maybe for years. It happened. Isn't that what's recorded in Luke 15? I'm out of here. Give me my money. A few months or years later in the pig pen, he says, hmm, I think I made a mistake. All those prayers led him right into the pig pen. Praise the Lord. You know what? Two things. My little children, John would write, keep yourself from idols. Now, none of you have them, I know, because every time I talk to somebody and say it might be an idol, they say, oh, no, 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 it's not an idol. Keep yourself from idols. Don't love this world. And quit worrying about the future. Did you ever, do you know what the word promise means? Promise? If I say, I promise you, my kids knew what the word promise means. If I said, I promise to take you to get some ice cream. That meant, Dad, if you don't do it, you're a bum. Jesus promised us that what he started he could finish. He promised us to give us the promised land. He promised to come back. He promised never to leave us and forsake us. He promised he would always be with us. He promised he'd give us the words we need. He promised us he'd give us bread and water. What more does he need to promise us? How about we need to get out of our lives of convenience and say, Lord, we promise to take this great commission and light the world up after we seek your spirit. We commit ourselves in totality. We're going to come together enough to form a little bond of attachment, which we might eventually call an army, disciplined, focused, together. Yes. You see, friends, you don't have to be afraid. The angels are waiting. You don't have to be afraid. The angels are surrounding us. You ever read Psalm 37? Or is it 34? It gives his angels charge. I want to tell you something. Psalm 91. He's going to guard you lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's especially written for the last days. Especially. So do this, if you would. Take a little while today and ask yourself, is my life in its time, its talent, and its treasure focused on the finish line? Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.
thank you for making the promises. Thank you for sealing them in your blood. Thank you for enduring the shame and sitting down at the right hand where you could orchestrate the eventual retaking back of this little globe for the glory of its creator. Thank you, Lord, that you've reached into our lives, that you're so forgiving and gracious. But more than that, you're powerful to set free. And forgive us, Lord, when we've kept a foot in the wrong kingdom in hopes of staring over the wall and seeing some of its dainties. Cleanse us from idol worship, Lord. And now, Lord, I'm praying, fill our soul with rapturous delight. Help us to know when it's time to start letting go of things in a way we haven't let go of them before. When do we abandon everything else, Lord, and just run for the finish line? I'm praying, Lord, win the victory, inch by inch, step by step, whatever it may be. We know you won't force us across the finish line. But if we need to limp or crawl, our faith might be weak. But even though we see Jordan's waves around us and the devil tries to say, oh, it's going to be bad, help us look at the captain. And he says, yep, it's going to be bad, but we're going through. Bless us, Lord. Help us to know it personally. Help us to know it as families and help us to know it as a church family and a larger denomination. Help us to come back to our Adventist simplicity and prophecies and hopefulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You'll sing as you're dismissed from the back. God bless you on this Labor Day weekend. Please go look at your lives and say, Lord, do you want me to focus, laser focus in a way I have in time, talent, or treasure? God be with you. <laughs>